Hello and welcome to the Not A Game podcast. I'm Tom Hatfield and with me I have human gift generator, Philip War. Hello. Award-winning smut peddler, Cara Ellison. Hello. <laughs> so accurate. <laughs> Our special guest for this evening is rock, paper, shotgun, overlord, Alec Mir. Hello, I'm not really an overlord, but uh, that'll do. <laughs> uh, underlord? Uh, midlord. I, mid-lord. In, my, in my head, it's kind of like you're one of the Zerg <laughs> from StarCraft. Overlord. If the Zerg constantly trying to eat each other, it's about apt, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Just, I forgot to think of a good, silly question. Um, what is the best thing to collect in games? Ooh. Doesn't necessarily have to be one that you're told to, it could just be weird shit. I was just thinking that it's because everyone's been playing Pokemon lately. Oh, yeah. <laughs> What about wasted empty minutes until drawing you closer to your inevitable death? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that suddenly set the tone. <laughs> Mere gloomcast is what we should have called this. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I was thinking about this recently because I, I kind of I end up Pokemon, playing Pokemon with all sorts of other games. Like uh, when I was playing Guild Wars, I basically spent the whole time trying to catch various pets as a ranger. <laughs> Also realised that uh, oh no this is this is gonna sound weird I kind of I, I kind of collect people yeah same that what? was probably gonna be my answer <laughs> um, as in sort of in in, in your basement starving <laughs> or or well, is there something more metaphorical like when I'm playing X well this is weird, even weirder actually because I collect people specifically women and ethnic minorities um, <laughs> when I play <laughs> XCOM for instance I try and get a really diverse team which includes firing if there's two people from the same country one of them get fired it gets fired. If I don't feel like I have enough women, I, some men get fired. <laughs> You're like that person, that state, like that guy from the states, that politician from the states, who's got a book full of women. Did you hear about that? Yeah, binders. binders for the women. I have yeah. a, well, I, I literally binders, have one of those. Yeah. That's how I find female guests. Oh my books. god, this is horrible. <laughs> no, no, no he's got a, a list of full of women. <laughs> you know, technology. <laughs> See, mine's like slightly more macabre because I do sort of. If there's a game that will let me be polygamous, I'll just collect husbands. <laughs> oh god, yeah. But <laughs> there's also the fact that when I played Fallout Three, I kept filling up my inventory because every time I killed someone, I tried to take a trophy. From near their oh body. Oh my god! Bill. <laughs> and so it became really good once um, I'd met the guy who will reward you when you give him like the fingers of the people that you've killed. But until that point, like I was just taking any old crap, and it was just like, well, I can't drop it because it's a trophy. And then it's like, yeah, but you're over encumbered and you can't move. Like, well, suddenly, dark light <laughs> makes so much more sense when you realise you just had to collect the fingers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was just like fingers weigh fuck all. <laughs> just keep you can kill as many people as you like. This is the thing. It was kind of keeping my like wanton killing streak in check because it just meant that I would be, you know, moving really slowly if I killed too many people. But then like... suddenly I'm freed up. I can do what I want. <laughs> Would you like remember? Like, would you like sit down and like reminisce? Oh, I remember that broom. That's from when I killed that guy. <laughs> well, you'd have to really concentrate. You'd be like, "Is that a cup that I picked up by accident, or is that a cup that I picked up from a dead person?" <laughs> okay, yeah. you win. I've, uh, oh, uh, if you want to hear about pip collecting husbands, uh, you should go to podcast number six. I think sexy, sexy mandibles. Oh god. Details her harem of town criers. <laughs> yeah that was that was some podcast definitely 
but yes, I. It's, it's hard to beat I... that. That is the more I think about it, the <laughs> collecting a bespoke trophy from each person you've murdered. That's... Yeah, no, my version was much more wholesome. Mm. I also do this. I also do this on Football Manager. I like, which then actually probably becomes a bit creepier because obviously you're searching for young players who will go in the future. So I'm constantly recruiting young teenagers men. from <laughs> young men from across the globe to come and live with me in Birmingham. <laughs> play for I, do, I do have a thing where if there's like a a high pad or rarer weapon or something like that in a game, I will obsessively hoard ammo for it for like a rainy day. Essentially, like there'll be some enormous fight. I need all of this for. And then I'll just never use it because I'm convinced whatever the next fight is will be bigger. So I'm just tend to be using the most basic shitty weapon throughout just in case I need the big yeah. stuff. I, <laughs> yeah, I, actually, if it's like if it's like cool main weapons and secret areas and things like that, I'll end up collecting them even if I don't use them. Like in Skyrim, for instance, you've got like all the cool Daedric wards and things like that. So I've got mm. a massive hammer that I don't use because I you know, use one-handed weapons all the time. But I just you know, kept it and then stuck it on a plaque in one of my houses. Well, it's it's thing. quite hard to... to get rid of a massive hammer, must be said. <laughs> you have to like drag them all around the fucking dungeon. Then you have to put down actual useful things just so that you can have this thing that you never use and <laughs> keep at home. And it's just really expensive, and you're really pleased with yourself that you finally managed it. It looks so good over the mantelpiece. Oh. Half half my inventory in Skyrim is special magical items that just temporarily increase how much you can carry purely for that, <laughs> just so I can get out of the dungeon with the most shit that I could never use but the idea of leaving it yeah. and at one point it reaches the fact that no one in the world can afford all your shit as well yeah. so it becomes that meaning you crash the economy I was like um, into making uh, potions for a while, but like experimenting with making potions. And so what that meant was that I had like entire sacks full of these weird like juices that would either they, they would usually do something really cool, but while doing something deadly or crippling yeah. or, you know, and so you'd be like, Whoa. you got to love those moments in Skyrim where those are usually my solution when I always realized I was carrying too much stuff. It's just like, look down, look at the list of ridiculous list of ingredients have picked up and then just eat all of them in the yeah. fraction of yeah. a second and then watch your screen strobe as you get <laughs> alternately poisoned and healed 300 <laughs> times in a second I, I really really enjoyed inventory tetris in resident <laughs> evil 4 i think i think collecting things to put in that were, were like definitely some of my sort of favorite moments because basically you'd have to really you'd, i had like a really amazing row of herbs <laughs> just red and green herbs just along the bottom that I sort of hoarded for the best surf. Yeah, that was the best. Oh man, just remember like moving your massive gun around in your, it just made no sense in terms of like having a bag that was a rigid it was, it was rectangle. A briefcase as well, even though you never saw him actually carrying the briefcase. Isn't that true yeah. for Sir as well? Don't you have to like stick yes, things it does into the, the, the yeah. Stalker style. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, um, uh, do you have a segue for this <laughs> i have no idea what i'm doing <laughs> nope um literally nothing i've been playing lately has an inventory <laughs> does the wolf among us have an inventory it does Can you collect things Ooh, here we go here we go here we go <laughs> yeah there's a couple of things you pick up but um in, in a in time-honored not a game way um it's sort of when you got to use them, you got to use them, and it's you know there's no two ways about it. So it's not like you go, when could I possibly use this? What we will do? You just click on the thing, and and, and it happens. Not it's the traditional adventure game absurdity, then. No, it's it's like The Walking Dead. You walk somewhere, some stuff happens, and you choose whether to be rude or nice about it, and, and that's basically it. Mm. So like real life, then. So how is The Wolf Among Us? It's it's 
quite good. You're trying to make me say a score, aren't you? Damn you! I'm not going to do that. Um, yeah, I mean it's uh, it's it's a lot like the Walking Dead ones, but um, it's sort of uh, kind of more playful because I guess you're not in a constant state of peril. It's it's mm. a noir it's a noir thing, a detective mystery. So it's got well, almost everything is the same in terms of how it plays. It's got a completely different feel because you're concentrating on on what happened and what's going on rather than, oh, God, when am I going to die? <laughs> How yeah, is the yeah. investigation, the mystery stuff, by the way? Because I've, I've always felt that, like, investigations and police procedurals and mysteries are a really big genre that games just haven't done well at all. This is something I was saying when we had a chat about this game on RPS, is that um, all this stuff Telltale are doing would be so well suited to a real story in the real world mm-hmm. where everything is logic-bound, but, of course... They're doing licenses, so it's necessarily fantasy. You know, it's all zombies with Walking Dead, and then with this, you know, no matter how astute a detective you feel you could be, it's essentially about doppelgangers and hypnotism and magical things that don't really die. So, you know, you can't actually treat it like a detective, which is a shame because I would love to see the same formula, you know, like The Killing or Volander or something, where you're actually trying to deduct a case using your using your own wits as well as, you know, the, the little things in the inventory and whatnot. Has anyone actually read the Fables comics, by the way? I haven't. New. I, ha- I have read them. Well, the first first few, anyway, um, which were excellent, I felt. Yeah, I liked them. I've read the first issue of the comic. I read it retroactively, and it, it, it was very different. Everyone was a lot more sort of like almost whimsical in a way, mm. whereas in the game they're, they're much more of the kind of Sam Spade architect stuff. Everyone's more, you know, they... They say a minimal amount. They're a lot angrier and more obnoxious generally. Whereas the comics, everyone's chatting. They seem quite happy, even though everything's terrible. The Telltaleans, uh, they're kind of a nightmare to write about, really, because um, because of the what the, they're the only real people who have actually managed to do episodic gaming um, properly. And so you've got mm. this bit where it's where you can you know you can tell people whether they should pick up the first one or not, but and they don't even sell them in episodes anymore, don't they? Don't think so. You no. just order them all up front, and you'll get it piece by piece. Yeah. J- Jen, Frank, and I began, dare I say, it, a letter series. Oh God. Um, over Christmas, <laughs> like yeah, no, last How Christmas, polygonal. and um. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, we were gonna actually put it on a uh, Eurogamer, and it was going really well. We had like the first half, but then uh, something uh, sort of. Re- personal matters happened with Jen and it stopped and then we and and I looked back at what we'd written um like a few days ago and it's it's really it really suits the episodic nature of the the game uh because you know we can talk about how each episode has affected our thoughts on the last episode and what we expect to happen next and our and it talked a lot about our our sort of emotional reactions to it and like our personal uh, feelings as to how our life was affecting uh, what what our thoughts were on each episode and as our life was sort of changing. Um, it was really really interesting, but we edited it down so that it like read more like a conversation rather than individual letters. I would say, um, and yeah, like I I felt like it was actually weirdly 
like more useful for like uh, an episodic sort of serial game almost. Um, that, and so I, I kind of I'm I'm weird about lesser series now simply because I feel like it it would be better sort of to to have two people work on one sort of full piece yeah. of writing if you see what I mean. Um, rather than, but then this one actually, like the actual structure of it, really suited what we were talking about. Yeah, because of the delays between exactly. things, like having let to go back. Rather than, I mean, I've written a few things where it's been basically like a Google document open with various people ed- dropping in their own bits and re-editing it and things like yeah. that. Yeah, but obviously, you to do that over something like The Walking Dead, it would basically be six months later, and I can't even remember what was happening. With that. Yeah. Well, it it was actually that we'd we'd. We started writing it when we bought the entire series altogether, the first season, and then um, we'd we'd sort of play the first episode and then talk about it, and then play the second episode and then talk about it. So it, went, it was over may, maybe about two or three weeks, um, but it was still sort of quite uh, quick. You know, we played them quite quickly, so it wasn't like it took six months or anything. But um, again, we still didn't manage to finish it simply because our lives got in the way, which I think actually is the ultimate <laughs> is the ultimate ending to it, really, is that mm-hmm. we couldn't finish it because it became actually that literally we were prevented from playing it by things that happened. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I guess what I meant when I said it's hard to worry about is when you see the first one of these the big thing about The Walking Dead was how much it branched and how much your decisions resonated with later episodes. Yeah. But when you see the, when you obviously when with The Walking Dead, there was only one episode out and you are really taking it on faith, which thankfully Telltale really earned with The Walking Dead, that you know, what you do now will have some meaning later. Yeah. Although I think my progress was lost in, from the first episode, so all of my huh. all of my decisions weren't passed on to the second episode, which really messed mm. up the rest of my decisions, which was weird. <laughs> and I think so. I think it was quite buggy, but I think that's actually more the framework that they've made rather than much to do with you know how they implemented it. I guess it's a it's a really cool idea to figure it in like that and and move the decisions between them. It's I mean I really love the way that uh, Mass Effect carries your decisions between games, but that is incredibly unwieldy to do and obviously took that team like six years you know more than that even uh, uh, to achieve yeah. uh, whereas to also compress that and do that release that over the course of six months the wolf among us is a bit more there's a couple of slightly jarring moments where it does sort of scream out like hey here's the big decision you know it's really gonna affect everything later you've got to decide now um which you know, kills the kind of subtlety and sense that you're shaping it a bit I haven't actually, I haven't actually spoken to anyone who's played it and who has read, who's read all the comics and is a big fan of them, because I find it interesting that it's supposedly, unlike The Walking Dead, which sort of went off to a side, a sideways part of that universe and did its own thing, it's 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 actually like set five years before the comics or something like that. Yeah. And it's supposed to be kept in step with them, which I don't know. I don't know how how much that's going to restrict what they they can do in terms of. Because, I mean, people died in The Walking Dead and in some games and not in yeah. others. Yeah, so. I mean, I really liked The Walking Dead, the game, because actually it reflected on how badly I thought that they'd interpreted the TV series. Because I really <laughs> disliked the TV series. I just didn't, I wasn't invested in, in anyone. I saw, the f- I saw the first series of a TV series and it started strongly, but it really went downhill. I- I've read quite a lot of the comics. And to be honest, the, 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 what I do love about The Walking Dead is the video game might well be the strongest of 
version of that story. Yes, I think so. And and it was yeah yeah it's weird because the last time I enjoyed like a yeah last last time I enjoyed like a an adaptation into a video game it was something like Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles on the NES. <laughs> so yeah. Oh, that was really hard. That game, I hated it. The wa- underwater sections were awful. I would love to play the Telltale's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Me too. Oh heartbreaking God. decisions about what type of pizza oh. to order. <laughs> whether whether you listen to the wisdom of the sad old rat. <laughs> and then Michelangelo would make some really bad joke, and everyone would be like, "Oh, yeah, that would be very pleasant. Maybe we should." Let's send a letter. Let's get everyone to send them letters. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Anyway. Um, the thing is, in the in the world that we currently live in, like nobody would like Michelangelo. They'd all secretly think he was a dick, and like Splinter would have to have all these like issues about you know rejection from society and things like that, rather than just being a you know a kindly rat who lives underground. Well, he is a very, he's so, quite a wise rat. Um, so I, yeah. I feel like he would be troubled by many things in the world. But yes, perhaps he has gone slightly on the emo side. I'm sure in the upcoming Michael Bay motion picture, which is happening based on this, he, he will tackle all of these sensitive issues and more. I'm sure. It won't be incoherent <laughs> metal things exploding. Yeah, I'm sure this film will be excellent. <laughs> I'm a bit worried about what's going to happen to April O'Neil and her zip-down jumpsuit in the hands of Michael oh, Bay. Gosh, it's Megan Fox, isn't yeah. it? So, uh, yeah. oh, it's not going to be subtle. No. Are they working together again now? Because didn't she call him, like, worse than Hitler or something? Something like that, yes. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. That's going to be a good movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I have absolutely nowhere to go from that conversation, so I've been playing the Stanley Parable. Oh, yes, that looks really, really good and very funny. Yeah. Hooray. Yeah, we talked about the demo at the beginning of the last podcast, which has basically nothing to do with the game, which is... It's just it is entirely just a series of jokes about demos. And it's, it's an exploration of the idea of demos, yeah. yeah. Which which is it has the same themes, but um So it's like so it's like the RPS version of a demo. <laughs> well this is the thing I'm sat there guiltily feeling that actually, yeah. yeah, this is a game that is squarely aimed at me, my sort of arts graduate kind of it's, um you know how like the uh, the young starting games journalist uh, does the joke by writing an article where they about how they can't write an article? Uh, it's that in game form. <laughs> yeah, I was basically saying it's a sort of a metatextual. It's a series of jokes about a demo. It being a demo, I feel like that's quite a. Uh, I don't know. It's a self-deprecating. Yeah, but it it works. It's not like what was it? Um, Blood Dragon, where the tutorial has jokes about how annoying tutorials are, and then. Mm. It's still a really annoying tutorial that you have to sit through. Yeah. Oh, but I quite enjoyed that. It was funny okay, for a while. But... Everyone shut up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the thing with the Stanley Parable demo is it does work, but it is it is noticeably different from a game because it's obviously a short thing given out for free, so they didn't spend as much time on it. There's... Yeah. I remember when we were talking about it before, Craig was a little bit worried that it was, over... as much as it's a big mockery of choice in games, that um, it was incredibly linear. It was basically just following the voice and hearing the jokes but the, the, the actual game gives you uh way more choices in that in fact well technically your choices are pretty much always obey or disobey but um yeah. they're, they're all those branch off in like loads of different ways and there's a ton of different ways the game can end and sometimes it doesn't end sometimes it ends and pretends it ends it's as did but actually when it restarts again things are subtly different 
So d- does the Stanley Parable, I mean, I haven't played it yet, um, but I, I, does it project a kind of interesting future for choices in games? And in like, I mean, I understand that it's making fun of that sort of structure, but d- is it sort of saying that, that games should be going towards something in particular? It's, I can't see it. it. It feels more like a thing that will be amusing and interesting unto itself, but I can't see like... I can't see it being something like Gone Home or whatever, where it really influences the direction in which games are going. I, I would actually really love right. to talk to, I can't remember his name, uh, David W something. Um, he goes by Cake Bread on the internet. The yeah, I, was say, I know his Twitter handle. Yeah. Oh, there's the modern paradigm. David Werner, maybe? I'm not sure. Um, but um, I'd really like to talk to him about because um, you're never sure with people who make these parody things, whether they, what their actual feelings are about the subjects they're parodying. Does he actually Radio. like choice in games? Does he, uh, or is he, does he, is he, uh, is this a, uh, I, I think it is a sort of a lighthearted laugh along with it. Uh, or is there supposed to be some deeper meaning to it? I'm always uncertain when I hit a parody game like that. Did any of you play um, Retro City Rampage in a similar sort of no. vein, I guess, which was, it's like a kind of baby GTA, which just like the original GTA, but just full of references to kind of 8-bit and 16-bit sort of console stuff. So, you know, there's a Turtles bit from the ancient game and it's it's just a constant stream of them. I found it exhausting because there was sort of no link. It was just random shit happening constantly. But similarly, I was like, is he doing this because he's fond of this stuff or because he thinks it's insane that this stuff was ever revered? Yeah, it's weird. There was um, a while back, there was a guy who made... Uh, I think he did it as a YouTube video first, and then he actually released it as a mod. Who made like a, a mod for the original Deus Ex that made it uh, that basically made it fun of Human Revolution. Yeah, yeah. I watched him afterwards. Uh, just, just what do you? What, and I asked him up front, what, what actually are your thoughts on Human Revolution? And he was for the most part in favour of it. He enjoyed it. He's just, um, he just thought it was funny <laughs> to <laughs> joke about the difference in games over the last ten years. How close is this Stanley Parable to the original? Everything that is in the original, I think. Everything that is in the original mod is there, um, but just extended, revamped. Um, so definitely, if you th- you know if you know play, the, it's not really worth playing the mod anymore. Aside from the fact that it's free, maybe, and you wanted a demo that actually had something to do with the game you were going to play, as opposed to the one that exists. Um, but yeah, it, it it pretty much obsoletes the dem- the original mod, um, and it's it is a lot better in a lot of ways. The fact that, for instance. The whole thing is set in this mundane office environment, but in the mod, they're having to convey that with like whatever they could find from the Half-Life Two, from Half-Life Two textures, which is a bit strange because <laughs> people are working at like it's, it's like an ordinary everyday office, but people are working on combine computers, things <laughs> <laughs> like that. Um, I think a lot of people have been doing the thing where they're a bit uncertain about how to speak about it and whether it, it spoils things for you or not. But I, I think, and yet here you are speaking about it, which yeah, wild abandoned. <laughs> yeah, I think to be honest, I think it works anyway. I think um, you could, there's definitely lots of you could definitely talk about things that happen without necessarily saying, talking about how you get there, and it will still be interesting and surprising. But I don't know if you. I, I, don't know, um, I can talk a little bit more about it, but if you guys want to be completely surprised, then I'll show. Uh, yeah, I quite like to be surprised. Maybe I'll I'll play it uh, this week and then see if we can talk about it at the Game City podcast. Yeah, that's probably makes more sense. Maybe in a, in a week or two, we will have like a. A, a full spoiler version of the Stanley Parable stuff, maybe, but yeah, definitely, it's one of the most infinitely replayable games I've ever played because you can finish it, you can get an ending in five minutes, but I have not yet found the extent to which just by simply by 
And for the most part, you are just ultimately obeying or disobeying the voice. Um, that will veer off in different directions. And is there it's really hard to talk Stanley? about it as well because it mocks you for things like you are Stanley, you are, or at Stanley. least you know the mm. the, um, the the idea is that you are. Yes, um, and the narrator is the voice in your head. Uh, but Stanley can actually hear the narrator and occasionally becomes aware of him and wonders why there's a guy in his head. But Stanley himself doesn't actually speak. And is there some manner of parable, perhaps? That bit, um, I think that's just, yeah, uh, not really. <laughs> I think that's, that might be part of a joke, is that it's not really teaching you anything. I think we, with, we need more games with, like, really hilarious white middle-class names like Stanley. I think we need more <laughs> games that are, like, you know... Neville, or you know, Ian's epic adventure. Brian. Um, yeah. So we'll talk about it. Like one of the reasons it's so hard to talk about as well is because it fucking mocks you for talking about it. Like, there's a uh, there's a bit where you can go down uh, where you can do the thing you normally do in games where you do something a little unusual and you get a result from the developer who's obviously been ahead of you. The way we talk about like, oh, do you know what happens if you go in this room and Deus Ex or whatever. And then, like, if but if you do that, the narrator says, "Oh, I bet you're all talking to your friends, saying, oh, do you know what happens if you go here?'" And I'm like, oh, <laughs> fuck you! <laughs> <laughs> I can't talk about this now. Screw you. <laughs> uh, the thing I found is it was like it, it struck me a lot that it it was quite similar to conversations I've had with developers who are frustrated about things, mm. or certainly the original um, did. I haven't played the um, the recent one. Uh, I've played the demo. But um, yeah, like in the original, like there's when you go when you disobey basically the sort of the sarcasm and the annoyance that you are then on the receiving end of does strike me as the sort of thing that a developer would feel watching you play their game and doing it, you know, in air quotes, wrong, you yeah. know? Yeah. But it's, um, yeah, but I think it's also critical of those developers in some ways. I mean, I guess that the biggest joke of the whole thing is that essentially um, is that it's the story of a man trying to break free from a monotonous, uh, from a monotonous uh, life as a monotonous office drone and doing everything he's told. But the only way to succeed in that is to do everything you're told by the narrator. <laughs> Um, he wants to tell. He wants to tell you the story about freedom, but uh, but he won't tolerate you actually exercising your freedom. Yes, um, I thought there were a fair few other things that they could have done with the original. So I'd be really interested to see whether this new one sort of pursues any of those. Yeah, no. Hmm. It's, um, one thing I will say in terms of like you wondering if it's going to change things or be influential is, I think it definitely shows that simply you you're basically walking in places and getting different narration. But that is. A perf- but it, that totally feels like a perfectly valid approach to things. I mean, you're making a choice by going through one door or another. Like the economy at the beginning of it, which is unchanged from the mod pretty much, is like you go into it, and it's kind of the the, the idea that, for, that the whole game forms around it. You go into a room, and the narrator tells you, "Stanley, walk down the left-hand door." And there's a left-hand door and a right-hand door, and you can go down the right-hand one if you want, whether it tells you on, despite the fact that it's just said you won't. Um, but yeah, um, walking to a different place and getting a different piece of story is you know perfectly interesting is a, a, a actually a really in, interesting way of telling an interactive story. And it's, 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 you know, it's no more or less valid than um, selecting a dialogue choice or something like that. There's really interesting uh, conversations going on right now about the nature of satire and mm. um, the the idea that it's not really satire unless you've got a target, unless you've actually got, you know, something to lose when you mm. actually take a side. Um, 
and that's really interesting in terms of the Stanley Parable because obviously it's it's trying to make fun of practically everything that you do in a in a game, and you're saying it's it's difficult to figure out what they actually think. And I think that uh, especially with um, I think um, my uh, friend ABB uh, wrote a really interesting thing on his blog about how. Um, GTA he thinks failed at satire simply because it didn't have like a specific point of view it, it yeah. tries it tries to, but then obviously it does have a point of view because everything is subjective so it, it sort of undercuts that so it's a really difficult conversation to have almost no, that's a fair point I, I don't I don't think they're necessarily it doesn't feel like there's a driving point that Stanley Palabra is going to go in it's not like a big angry satire about and that's gonna shake up the way people view narratives it's merely playfully pointing out that some of the things that we we accept are ridiculous and i think maybe that's think it's stuff that people are kind of aware of as well because you know it's not like you sit there and go oh that is so true i'd never thought of that before it's it's more yeah. kind of they've been sitting on the edges of your awareness and yeah. and it just sort of goes yep we noticed this too here it is in in, in our game and yeah. it's gloriously silly or funny or dark I think, I think you know the key to it when you're approaching satire is maybe not necessarily having a side but if you're if you if you're claiming satire then you've got to be presenting something as ridiculous and you know sometimes people have completely different opinions on whether something's doing that like um there's a fascinating uh, interview on rps uh, between which john did with the writer of far cry 3 which he thinks that he's written a ridiculous mm. over-the-top satire and everyone yeah. else just thinks he's written a bad game Mm. Um, but yeah, he he thinks it's ludicrous, but he's presented it in such a and it is ludicrous, but he's presented it in such a straight faced way that no one believes he thinks it's ludicrous. But it's because you have to have something at stake in order to make your point. So, for example, if you uh, make a game that's really misogynist, there's nothing, and you're like a bunch of white guys making that and mm. a straight white guys that normally make games already like the, and other people are already making quite misogynist games then making another misogynist game in which women get like a shit sort of position in it that's not there's nothing at stake for you there to to try and satirize that position via giving via making the same mm. game again is not having anything at stake so it's not actually a satire it's just reinforcing oh. what's already gone before i'm not sure i'm not sure i agree about the state but i think it's entirely possible for a bunch of white guys to make a satire about racism or sexism but the, the, i think the key component there is not that they are involved but that they with how they present it whether they are just presenting that, it that's not what i meant well that, far cry was it was trying to be a serious game as well as that stuff yeah uh, you know, that's not really of... what i meant though i mean oh, i sorry. think that i think that you can make us like a satire, like, but you you have to do it by doing something mm. different. That's what I mean by having something at stake, taking a risk mm. and actually presenting a case that yeah. it, that actually goes against what's already been like put out there. So I think you have to have something really at stake. You have to have something to lose in order to make a really effective satire. Yeah, I think you make a good point. To be honest, uh, it. I find it hard to get exactly what the point the Stanley Parable puts across is, and maybe it isn't satire in that fact, but obviously no one really minds so because it is, it, it's just poke, humorously poking fun at narratives in games, you know, it's not making a grand or political point. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Is, is it moaning or is it just... Yeah. Actually, it's more. It comes across a lot more as fondness, you know, mm. like for the silliness that you find in video games and, and more just sort of bringing that out in a 
in an interesting and entertaining way and so I kind of that's why I'm saying that I don't think it's satire because I don't think it's criticizing I think it's more that it's just teasing so it's more like yeah. robot chicken or something where it's absolutely in love with this stuff but part of the love is celebrating its absurdity yeah, it's yeah it's a big you know it's a big like yeah. Mel Brooks spoof or something yeah I mean that's that's really cool because I mean you, it's more like a kind of exploration of sentimental stuff for particularly for people who who are already familiar familiar with a lot of these sort of tropes. So I think, yeah, like I'm kind of, I can't, again, I kind of think that it's interesting that um, they're directing love towards um, a certain trope, but like things like, um, you know, that Far Cry writer, obviously he was trying to direct some sort of derision, but was ineffective. Mm. So yeah, but I prefer the love thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what I'm interested to do is try and get maybe my mum or someone to play the next home because I want to know whether somebody who has no knowledge of gaming tropes will be able to sort of enjoy it or get any of the humour or get, you know, the majority of the humour, like how much of it is to do with narrative and how much of it to do is how much of it is to do with gaming. I suspect they'll enjoy it still, but not necessarily get everything i think um, there are things that it says about narrative and about narration that are universal all sorts of fictions and there are things that are just plain funny yeah i think there are some things that games have certainly inherited from films as well that we kind of take for granted and are not really challenging um but as usual uh everything has gone out of my head so i can't think of any examples but yes um, i was curious what you meant by that because i I have strong opinions on uh, game uh, games, learning from films and such like. Well, I mean, for for example, where the camera is at any given time. Mm. Uh, oh is, yeah, absolutely. Is is a real something that that film have has influenced games over, but I'm not sure that games have experimented enough with having their own way of using the camera. I, I absolutely agree with that. The um, I, I for a while I uh, I wanted to be a cinematographer when I was about. 18, 19. I studied it for a while and it's kind of fascinating to see how games fall flat on a lot of that stuff. Again, they don't really think about the camera angle very much. There's a handful of standard game camera angles, none of which are terribly visually interesting. Mm. Um, and things like, uh, yeah, things like cuts, things like lighting aren't necessarily observed. And I don't want games to be just like films, but I, the first cinematographers, they, they took their own inspirations from paintings and then added movement. And I would like to see more games taking inspirations from films and then adding interactivity. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting as well that we try to be photorealistic a lot of the time. You know, the David Cage thing. Um, instead of trying to make graphics that actually invoke in us a particular feeling that's or a reaction that's supposed to happen towards what's going on in the game um Inkripari's Slave of God uh uses his he uses his graphics to uh like just be make you feel wildly dis- disorientated and isolated and ov- overwhelmed mm. and that's exactly how you're supposed to feel or ha- exactly how you feel in a club environment and i think that's really interesting that instead of being like really photo realistic and recreating the inside of a club in a really you know realistic manner i mean besides the fact that he he obviously didn't have the budget to to do that um he decided to use graphics to evoke a certain kind of emotion in the player and i think that should be done way more often the anti-chamber as well did similarly you know it's supposed to make you feel pretty damn messed up see this is this is what i often think when i hear 
that whole graphics argument and the mocking of it, which I probably hear more often than the actual argument nowadays, um, is I think the concept that is awkwardly trying to be put across by the people who are talking about how it will be easy to convey emotion with greater technology is that what they want is... And they're, they're basically jealous of what live action films and television yeah. have. Which David Cage is, just wants to make rubbish yeah. films. He just wants to be Tommy Wiseau, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, what, what they what they want is the ability to like just put a camera at an actor and tell them to convey an emotion and have it happen, which is it's, you know it's one of the easiest things films can do, and it's one of the hardest things games can do. Oh, well, I want to feel love. Sorry, yeah. racist <laughs> impressions of friends. <laughs> Whereas, I mean, like flying someone through space and having planets explode, games can do really easily. Films have a really hard problem with. Um, and I think it, I can under, totally understand why they want that. And, but um, at the same time, I'm not sure how achievable it is. I mean, and it's not about photorealistic graphics. Textures aren't that important in this context. It's more about, you know, it's more about animation, really. It's more about conveying facial expressions and things like that, which, uh, again, and if you talk about cinematic games, are things that games often str- struggle with. Um, well, not even animations, but just setting up particular situations which will provoke a reaction. Yeah. You know, like um, calling back to particular icons or motifs, or, you know, just embedding them within the game so that they become meaningful mm-hmm. and so that you can kind of touch on them at the right moments, or, you know, like Slave of God does, you know, sort of manipulating them just to sort of have that distancing, weird effect and, and just having. You know, if you set up the baseline as something that doesn't have great graphics but looks a particular way, then if you change it at particular points, then that becomes meaningful as well. That like you just have to set up baselines and you have to set up touch points. Mm. Yeah, I think so, so. I mean, I, I can understand. I can kind of understand and sympathise with like the David Cage pursuit of uh, in that respect, and and I think that is borne out by his games and that he tries to cast Hollywood stars and do mocap on them or whatever. Obviously, a lot of it is let down with the writing, but um, the I can certainly understand that because yeah, it would be nice. To, but if you're going to do that, you might as well just do FMV again. If you're going to just go heavily into motion capture or whatever. For me, in games, the way that you provoke a certain reaction or even emotional reaction uh, effectively is by putting you in a situation then having you participate in it um, in a particular way and funneling you into a, you know, a particular set of, of actions that actually ha- like provoke you into feeling a particular way. Like, um, like Castles in the Sky did that. I mean, it's not necessarily, you don't necessarily make any like meaningful choices in Castles in the Sky, but essentially uh, your part, just your participation and what's going on and, and, and this actually story that's being told and this atmosphere that's being built around you actually provokes in you a feeling of contentment and happiness. And um, yeah, it, it's just a little bedtime story that actually you're, your actions in it uh, like collecting little orbs for example as you bounce up up the clouds and making a lovely sort of toy bell noise as you collect them <laughs> just that is actually just one of the most pleasant things and i think just your participation in that is just really meaningful in itself one thing i really liked about um i found really interesting in your castles in the sky article car is um you described like that the way in which and i think you're absolutely right in which the jumping mechanism in Castle in the Sky conveys a kind of reckless joy. Yes. Um, the way in which you and I, I, other games have done the same thing, where you charge up a jump, so you just like you tense yourself and then you let loose in this huge reckless leap. Yeah, I mean there there are so few like mechanics that I would say that I think are 
really innately pleasurable to do in games. Like some one of one of those pleasures is 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 pulling the trigger on a gun. Like and that obviously has you been overdone. <laughs> I know I'm a horrible person. But it is I was about to make myself look worse by saying it's not really pulling the trigger, it's hitting the guy in the head. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, because if you just shoot the thing and it doesn't hit anyone, then there's no pleasure to be found there. But it's it more is. like wishing a man to be dead and then he is. <laughs> I know. It's the act of being a god in a bit. <laughs> a vengeful yeah, god it... with a gun. I mean, part, a part of that is because we've iterated on that mechanic for such a long time that it would be really terrible of us for not to, to not make that feel good, to not have made that feel good by now. I, I think, actually, I was going to go back to what Pip said. I think it's both to an extent. Like, both of those are clearly things that people have worked on. Um, I mean, the sound of firing and the amount of recoil, I think, dictates a lot of the enjoyment of shooting. But, as, but so then so does watching someone ragdoll down the stairs. I was going to say yeah. the description of jumping in Castle in the Sky immediately put me in mind of the early PopCap stuff like Peggle, which just like these lovely little chime sounds and stuff like that. And the escalating note makes you go, I'm just firing a ball and it's brilliant. It's the best thing I've ever done. It feels amazing. Yeah. I want to do it forever. There's a really yeah. interesting article by, uh, oh, I'll be able to say who it is by because it's on Edge. Um, <laughs> I, know, I know who it's by. but It's by Ian Edge. <laughs> yeah. Um, about uh, gun feel as it's called, um, which talks about um, which, which talks about the idea of conveying things through gunplay. And it, it's got a great anecdote from Ed Stern, who's interviewed as part of it. Oh, there is a name on it. It's Marsh Davis. There you go. Um, <laughs> um, in which he talks about how they, uh, when they were balancing the guns in uh, Wolfenstein enemy territory, um, people complained that these two, that um, one side had a more powerful submachine gun. Uh, but they, and they knew that mechanically they were completely identical. But then they looked at the stats and realised that yes, one side is killing people more with this than the other, and the only real difference was the sound. <laughs> but it was making people treat the gun differently and be more confident with it. Ah, that's, that's really interesting. I'll put it in the uh, show notes. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I think I think there are a few, like very few, uh, like feels like that in games. Like <laughs> feels, that's a Tumblr word. Um, there's heart there's also um interestingly the guy that i was speaking to at crytek about warface um he was saying that they've localized the guns like the the recoil on the weapons like when we weren't yeah. talking about dodgy representations of women um we were talking about like gun localization and apparently in russia they prefer like really strong recoil and in asia they sort of really balk at that so you have to really sort of like tone it down and make it a lot more subtle and then we've got like yeah. a little goldilocks complex and we're just like oh it can't be too hard and it can't be too soft see i, I wonder what that is i wonder if that's uh, I, I suspect it will be through media and through just the guns that are made in the country because the, the fact that Russian, the games the fact that that Russian people like that things, country. yeah, the so, fact that you Russian know, people you... like things with a lot of recoil and a lot of noise doesn't surprise me, given like the the classic nature of the AK forty seven. Well, I mean, when you link that to the fact that games, ma- uh, gun gun manufacturers have their guns like licensed in games. Yeah, that was um, allegedly. Like, yeah, there was a, yeah, it was a very interesting Eurogame article. I can't remember who by uh, Simon Parkin. Yeah. 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 Although. <laughs> I, I think don't... if you ever use the phrase, a very interesting Eurogamer article, there's... <laughs> it could be Christopher. That's uh, 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 a very moving Eurogamer article. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, that's, that's the difference. Um, yes, which was very interesting. Um, and I'll, again, I will link to that as well. 
but it's not come out exactly who does it. I know EA have said that they do not pay for guns uh, because they simply don't see why they should. Yes. Well, I mean, I think the the actual uh, practice of it is more widespread than we think mm. it is and, ha- and can prove because no one will talk about it because comp- the games companies won't talk about it. Uh, but... Um, you should see the kickbacks Ross and all got from the Blunderbuss Corporation for, uh, for Sailor Moon. <laughs> He's Ouch. taken so many... Yeah, that's, I think you'll find that's a perfectly accurate tuba. <laughs> but um, I think the uh, military often sponsor films to have their um, military equipment shown in a good light. For example, I think in... Uh, Man of Steel did that, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's, the, it's, the, it's... The Michael Bay Transformers films call back to an earlier point expertly. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the, the reason he keeps being hired to do these films, even though he's a terrible director, is he can basically get free tanks and helicopters for them. Yes. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you want a bunch of tanks in your film, they're the best people to ask. And if your film is about how the military is shit, they will probably say no. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember if it was Simon Parkin who said this or... Someone else, but I think it was a battleship had quite a lot of mm. military sponsorship, and so there's like you know there's tanks and things. I mean, I haven't seen mm. it because it sounds like an awful movie, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I read a bit about it. I don't know where. So yeah, I think it's kind of silly of us to probably suspect that that is not going to happen or is not already happening in games. But yeah, I mean, I wonder how much it goes on, really. Mm. It's uh, yeah, it's an interesting subject. Um... But yes, anyway, uh, the, uh, the the sort of the the game feel, the gamey feel of that that one little jump in Castle to, of the, in the Sky is uh, it really reminded me in a weird way of Joe Danger because you also have that feeling of you know when you let go of your trigger finger, um, then it uh, Joe will jump, isn't that correct? Uh, do like a sort of little bike jump, and it's really really satisfying. Just that one feeling of Joe Danger jumping is just like the most satisfying thing in the world. And I, I feel like that, you know, it has a similar sort of thing in Castles in the Sky where like you feel like, wee, it's like a, yeah, like a, as Alex said, like a kind of pinball feel that is just really fun. But yeah, that, ga- that game, a little game Castles in the Sky is really wonderful. It takes 10 minutes. It's um, something you should play with children because it's beautiful. I can't remember. Did you actually um, talk about your Warface interview on the previous podcast or not? Warface. It's just such a funny name. <laughs> yeah, it is. will never not be humorous. Decent name. <laughs> it's much more fun to read than say, though. I can't make it satisfying to say. Maybe I just need a deeper voice. Every single time someone mentions it, I, I want uh, Craig Pearson's. Uh, I want to read Craig Pearson's suggestion that they call it Wargland again. <laughs> that's actually one of the most amazing articles ever. To be honest, they've been stupider names. I remember. I remember way back from when I. This will be when I first started reading games journalism with like PC Zone in the nineties. Wargasm. Wargasm. <laughs> yeah. And this was this was sadly cancelled, but an enormous. Uh, in joke when I was still at Future doing stuff for PC Game, it was an upcoming Russian shooter called Internal Pain. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Post operational, bad curry? What, what kind of internal Emotional? pain? Oh my goodness. It was just about shooting demons, sadly. <laughs> but still, you know, I'd rather have Warface than, you know, some combination of like metal uh, hero company army honor nonsense that i can't even remember the difference between anymore mm. 
well, the name that is. I'm not sure about the game itself. <laughs> the game itself was like, you know, it's a, a shooty, runny, you know, it's it's quite fun. You know, you scuttle around and you you can slide around on your butt killing people, which is actually really satisfying when you can get it to go right. So why didn't they call it War Butt? <laughs> Everyone would have been on board. Yeah. Well, I know. Oh. Butt War yeah. would be an amazing game. War Butt. No, quite... Butt War would be just people like, just just like little butts fighting each other with guns. It, it's like an, I think the next one will be called Butt War or something because there is an escalation <laughs> going on here. Like four years, four or five years ago, we all thought World of Tanks was a hilarious name. It now is it's a Warface. hilarious name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thing with like the game though is like it, it didn't feel particularly memorable. Like I've been enjoying playing Counter Strike Go, you know, uh, this last week, um, and that feels a lot more satisfying and a lot more kind of just um yeah. slick i think i mean obviously warface is still in um beta at this point but um yeah like i just i found that i was enjoying that whereas the other one was more this is a competently put together yeah i think it's it's almost in terms of obviously critically you should obviously compare it to like counter strike and call of duty and battlefield but i think in, in market terms it is it is aiming for a very different thing because it's free and there aren't really any big you know modern military shooters that are free and mm. thus there are no isn't that are going to be successful Go. in russia isn't csgo free as well i, I think csgo is just no i think it was like 12 quid i think they reduced it which is why i picked it up last yeah, it wasn't weekend. Very expensive. Um, How is CSGO, it, by the way? I never got into the Counter-Strike In fact, this is my major games journalist shame, as I did not play Counter-Strike until I was like working at PC Gamer two years ago. <laughs> well, I hadn't played I, it I until last it week. I to the so rest of the staff, and they were like, my go. God. And they, they ordered <laughs> me to play it that evening. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I've, yeah I've, been, I've been enjoying it. Although the matchmaking, because, um, because the people that I'm playing with have also only downloaded it recently. I mean, they've played previous iterations but um we yeah, have ended up very good well we've ended up being much made with people just completely outside our league because you know we're only playing it in in tiny bits and competitively rather than you know practicing or or having the thing know anything about us so i think what it's trying to do is just go well play against these people and then afterwards it's like huh that went badly for you guys didn't it right well we'll uh, we'll skew this down yeah. slightly i guess that's the thing happens. about matchmaking they've got, they got to kind of assess you yeah before. well they have to like establish a baseline and when i'm just like playing three games in a week because <laughs> of you know other commitments then it's a bit like Oh, but yeah, I we <laughs> so it, it warns you at the start, you know, when you're playing competitively, this could take up to 90 minutes because it's like up to 30 rounds of three minutes of up to three minutes each. And then so we've never come even close to 90 minutes. <laughs> and you're just like, because at, at that point it was like, well, shall we play this or shall we play some Dota? And it was like, Counter-Strike will be over quicker than Dota. Mm-hmm. <laughs> God damn it. Um. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I I do mean to give it a go because uh, I've always been put off by the fact that everyone I'm going to play against has been playing this for the last ten years straight and is a complete mind reader <clears throat> who will put a bullet through my skull from two miles away. But uh, hopefully that that matchmaking will alleviate that. Um, I mean, the the best bet is is 
is with friends, you know, get 12 yeah. people together. It was, yeah. it was the lunchtime game in my own. I think space. all my friends are much better than me than Counter-Strike <laughs> as well. But you know what? Because no one was expecting me to be any good at it because I was just like, I'll probably be shit at this. So it was my own fault. But um, I lowered everyone's expectations and then we went in. And then all four of the guys that I was playing with got killed, which means that they are stuck just watching things through your, um, your vision, basically. And so what happened was this guy came up behind me I think I whirled around and actually managed to shoot him in the head and then shot his friend and I was just like yes and everyone saw that <laughs> that's, the, that's the nice thing about it I mean I'm not generally like a fan of ultra competitive games the kind of that become an esports and stuff you know, I, it's not, I don't, you know I don't resent them but they're not really for me um, but the thing about Counter-Strike is that of all of those things it seems the most accessible because it is it is a shooter. It is a very good and very, very like carefully balanced shooter. But there are transferable skills there from other games. Whereas, it, you know, if the first time you go out with a MOBA game, you're going to be starting from scratch pretty much. Hmm. Like Warface was actually uh, easy to pick up because you know y'all have played shooty man games before yeah. and stuff. It's weird because like I didn't really get to talk about the. I didn't. I chose not to talk about the the way the game actually works because it was more interesting to talk about what the guys had said about or what the um, man had said about um, representation of women in the game. Yeah. But yeah, so it's kind of interesting. Like. No, I think that was important. It was. Uh, oh yeah, no. It's, it's weird seeing reading it because it just feels like you're you're having a completely. He's just completely oblivious to your problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was weird because they'd clearly thought about how they were going to represent women and they'd clearly sort of had a lot of internal debate about it but it had just never seemed to me to have started in the right place because it was always like you know it took as as given that women were like an optional extra mm. and therefore just what to do from that point and I was like well I, I kind of feel like you're starting at the wrong point you know from, from the get-go here or like you know th there were certain other assumptions that I think they'd well, they, started from well, and it just had just spiraled from there really. I think for me when I was reading your article on it I was just getting really annoyed with that guy because I was kind of like don't you understand that no one no one votes on like what what the men look like and if they did then it would be way like it, it would be well that's the point it's like yeah it, it doesn't ever take women in games as an equal presence like I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the problem and it, it is embedded from the very start so no matter how much of a conversation that you have around it you can never really get to an answer that I will find satisfactory and that I think other women will find satisfactory because you are starting from the position that they're kind of eye candy or like an yeah like an optional downloadable extra it's the whole Mellor's default thing it's one of the and it's one of the hardest things to shake because, uh, in, in a lot of ways but also the fact that you know, obviously the met the women have primarily been defined by like what they look like already. Mm. Like before you even start this conversation, it's like, so how should we? What should we make them look like? It's like, no, well, you just make them look <laughs> like normal soldiers, and then we can carry on with our lives. You know? When I said like, you know, because I did ask the guy like, aren't you tempted to just like give them your agenda and just say, you know, you either live with it or you bugger off? I think I phrased it slightly differently it was like either you bored with this or you take your misogynistic views elsewhere but um, crytek's so so big now there's going to be a board who have their demographics and the very targeted uh, target market and just won't be interested in even the individual views of the people making the game or there it's, it's a shooter for the 18 to 30 male demographic how do we monetize this in the most maximum way 
They're very strange. But this is the thing is, well, this is Crytek. This is people who everyone in the world told them not to take the aliens out of Crytek, and they didn't. Yeah. But now when a handful of people on a forum tell them, you know, show some cleavage on these female characters, they're okay. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's odd, isn't it? I think it's weird, though, because I remember... You know, I wrote, I wrote that Crisis 3 thing that everyone really liked and the Crisis 3 preview. And, um, and I, I, I just, yeah, I, I didn't just like the game really at all. But um, obviously other issues came to the fore in that thing. But uh, I, I went to a Game City event just after that and it was like partly hosted by Crytek Studios or something. And I, They're doing some really interesting things out. Uh, game city this year and i'd like yes. to talk to them about those because they're doing that map thing yeah the map thing with so, the british library exactly so they teamed up with the british thing. they teamed up with the british library and it sounds amazing like they're basically getting a student like a student i think student developers to to mm. uh use old maps old photographs and lots of other historical documents from the british library in order to model um like essentially uh like landscapes that are are from from our past which is amazing like some of their work yeah. is beautiful and and such an amazing investment and i'm so excited about this sort of the idea of intersection of of what's in the library uh like analog sort of stuff and 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 digital representations of them and then like that's really amazing um but then i was really i realized i was in an arena in an arena in which there were lots of tri- crytek developers who obviously read what i said uh to this guy and um and I expected to be very badly received, but some one lovely Crytek developer came up and said, can I give you a hug <laughs> for writing that? And I was like so relieved in that moment. So it's just like, oh gosh, I thought I was going to be absolutely shunned. <laughs> but I'm it, sure there's a massive split between the part of Crytek that makes technology <laughs> and part of Crytek that makes shitty bang bang games. Yeah, the technology part's probably bigger and slightly embarrassed by this shit. Well, it's weird because I think that one developer actually was working on that game, but I think that some this is where the journalism and 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 criticism actually comes in because I think that they do feel like often and I'm not speaking for this person, but I think there must be a feeling like they are stuck in a track where they are making something commercial and they need critics to point out that they could be different and it should be different in some respects and I think that's really interesting because the critical conversation could actually change the way that these things are developed because it, it, there was a kind of weird feeling of relief that someone had said this um, stuff. When you're working from market research, you can only really find out what people have already liked. Like, you know, if you say to somebody, do you want a game that does, and then you tell them a whole new thing, then they'll be like, mm, I don't know, you know, maybe well, if you, you do it right. <laughs> So yeah. I think yeah, there's like inherent problems in that. And when you're a big company, trying not to do anything that's going to suddenly lose you an awful lot of money, then you do tend to maybe rely on that kind of stuff a bit more. And that's not to say that it's OK. It's more just you can sort of see where the problems creep in. Yeah. I, yeah. Think, I think as well that when you're starting out in journalism or from people from the outside, they uh, there's, there's a perception that maybe there's more bad blood than there is. As a, in reality, most people are actually quite professional, and they can accept mm. that you will write something critical of them, and they can still. That doesn't mean that it, it's war and you hate each other. It, that you can still, you know, have a civil conversation afterwards, even if you have severe differences of opinion. Mm. Yeah. Also, they think That's they're stupid true. and don't take us seriously anyway. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is it. I mean, I, I I wonder how much. I mean, you can't really, as a developer, take 
much criticism as a cue, a creative cue, because like, it just doesn't work that way. Like, I well, think then you that... end up just like doing game design by committee, and that doesn't yeah. work either. Yeah, yeah. So... We're, we're pointing out the problems. We're uh, you're not really presenting solutions. There's a big there's a big difference between those two things. Yeah, and it's a lot of it. It's it's about articulating something in a particular way. I mean, I think a lot of it. It used to be that criticism was entirely for the consumer to make a consumer decision but I don't think it's that way anymore I think that actually criticism has become uh, despite what everyone says about games journalism I think that it's actually become less about consumer uh, journalism and actually more about um, essentially a subjective interesting point of view that you can yeah that you can sort of mediate with lots of other um, interesting sort of pieces of criticism yeah well i suppose but they are still both important i mean there's a reason like we've moved for instance to uh eurogamer recently and pc gamer a few months ago um moved to like reviewing paid alphas and betas and things like that because and that is very much from a consumer standpoint is like these are these people are asking for money uh, you know it's, it's valid for us to tell you whether you should spend that money and also, there are only about twelve big budget console games released a year because they're too expensive to make that, so they've got to make the article somewhere. Yeah, well, I mean, what's I'm not... interesting about those is the fact that you can't really pin a score on them as well, and that's it's partly because the games are going to carry on developing, but also because of Metacritic. And I think that that's oh. an example of things cutting the other way because if you give something a, a review score, then Metacritic will drag that out, and then it won't let you change it once the game has been released. So it's kind mm. of like an interesting. The games that don't have scores because they're in flux and the internet aggregation systems that we currently have in place aren't set up to deal with that or to reflect that and so uh, but then i have no real interest in fixing that because i think people just 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 not use metacritic uh, well yeah. no but i'm just saying it's interesting like how the systems that we've set up force us to act yeah. in a certain way yeah the metacritic have a weird policy about keeping the first score up which is yeah, bizarre. I don't know why that's important to them at all. But isn't isn't Metacritic only really for sort of internal business use? Like, does someone who's going to buy a video game really refer to Metacritic? Uh, and well, so for, for like an indie thing that's going to be really reviewed, so to speak, in early access, it's not important anyway. It's Sadly, I think fair. some of them do. But, um, well, it's always mm. hard to tell how much the people in the, who uh, talk on the comments and the forums are representative of everyone else. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't know, like, I'm always conscious of the fact that we're completely divided from um, actual consumers. I, I feel like a lot of the time there's a, a lot of conversation about, oh, you know, um, corruption and blah, blah, blah. And all on the forums are all like, oh, games journalism is so corrupt and stuff. And I and I feel so divided from that simply because most of the people that I know and the critics that, like, you know, I talk with, like, it, it seems so, that world seems so divided from us because we have quite stringent sort of ethics, all of us. And um, I feel like a lot of critics um, think that, like, game journalism might actually be, uh, like, uh, like a better world, much better world than it is actually perceived. And I think lots of consumers, it's because they, they don't, you know, they don't all read all of the, you know, considered journalists that we know, like Chris Donlin or, you know, I think I think it's weird because they, you know, they they're obviously they have no idea whose byline is whose and they don't pay attention to that. But we do. So it's our world is so divided from that. Um, there's a reason that by and large, you know, most kind of known game critics have 
a pretty similar more or less number of Twitter followers. And that's because the catchment area of people who are really following this stuff closely is, is, is pretty small. There's only so many people. The vast majority of people who want to buy a video game are picking up review scores or whatever quite ambiently just to get a more sort of generalised sense of is this game good? Am I going to buy it? Yeah, that's what I mean, I think. I mean, there's always going to be more casual consumers that we can't reach. And I think to a certain extent, you've got to accept that. I mean, a friend of mine worked at the cinema once and told me that there's people who just go in there and say, oh, what's, uh, oh I'll go see something today. What's on? Yeah. And that, that fucking baffles me. But they're, they're there. But uh, by a certain point, you can't write for those people because they're never going to read it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you have to figure out, uh, like, the few critics that actually you you trust or are in tune with your opinion i think you can figure out much more reliably than exactly whether you'll like something or not all right let's um let's wind up on the navel gazing and um we've been going for a while so let's shall we uh shall we get some tw- questions from twitter and end oh yeah if we got some good questions we've got a handful um we have from craig lager our absent um podcast member who asks what is love open brackets Baby, don't hurt me. Close brackets. Um, Maybe Craig, he's as... answered his own question. <laughs> Baby, that doesn't hurt you. I Craig, don't know. <laughs> as you should know, really, Love is an indie MMO created by Eskil Steenberg. I hope that helps. Excellent. Uh, good, good question. Uh, Craig Lager, I think your name is. Um, I think it must be pronounced Lager, like the drink. Mm, yeah. Love is uh, is is when my nan in in 1985 uh, desperately tried to find me a Transformers Megatron toy for Christmas and searched high and low, even though a it turned into a gun, which is clearly inappropriate, and b wasn't available in the United Kingdom at that time. So oh, wow! Oh, she didn't succeed. She, she really, she really did try. That's amazing. Um, I now feel like no one has loved me that much. Yeah, I feel unloved. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for depressing us all, Craig. <laughs> Harry Bond asks, "What is your favourite tree in a game, and why?" Oh my gosh, I love Dota trees so much. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to tell everyone how amazing they are. You can. What's so good about Dota trees? I can... like the noise where you eat one. Yes, you can eat them for health. Uh, if you have a tango, you can hide in them. You can basically run around in them to 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 basically get, like sort of essentially like shake off all of the enemies you're chasing you um you can oh my gosh there's so many. you can go to a secret shop in them and you can you can go and fight some some creeps in them i mean they're amazing there is like there's absolutely nothing like dota trees it's a pretty good answer um i, I don't know myself i guess the crisis ones because they fall down when you shoot them with the machine gun and mm-hmm. i like it when things fall down when you shoot them with the machine gun in games uh Bless you. <laughs> there's, there's a good thing in the tree Oh, that's true. It gives you that leaf that lets you fly for fucking miles. Richard Kavarshan <laughs> was asking for a um, um, level map of the Deku tree on Twitter the other day, and I was like, that sounds fascinating. I want to see that. So if anyone's found it, if Richard, you're listening to this podcast. What level one, or what was he particularly asking for? He was asking for a level map, so essentially the inside of the Deku tree. Oh. Uh, like and... a Haynes Manual style cutaway. Yeah. Mind. Yeah, yeah, that would be cool. I don't know what he found, but I wonder if he got one. I was going to say loads and loads of um, like walkthroughs from back in the day had like ASCII art, like you know, just floor plans and stuff. Yeah, like. oh, I, I love mean, ASCII art. I was actually thinking of Deco Leaf in uh, Wind Waker there, which I I loved because I could I would just climb tall things and go base jumping. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of awesome. 
And the Deku Tree like basically dies in um, Ocarina of Time, like after you finish the um, like clearing out all the crap that it's got inside it. Then you go outside and it's like, yeah, you're right. Thanks for that. I'm still going to die. All right. <laughs> um, okay. It's a couple more. Um, Spooky Rotten Pears says, I am a misanthropic shut-in. What are the best games for me to play to develop empathy for others? Oh, um, <laughs> don't play Dota. <laughs> uh... <laughs> the trouble is that a misanthropic shut-in is probably going to eject quite heavily to our touchstones for games that make you feel emotional, such as Gone Home. So uh, we need a sort of middle ground. Yeah. Maybe, hmm. maybe um, what's it? The, uh, oh, God, I forgot what it's called. Um, Spec Ops The Line. Because it's got loads of killing in, but it does, does require you to have some emotions once or twice. Mm. So it's or maybe maybe something. Oh, I was going to say maybe something like FTL because then you'd start to like develop a fondness for your crew, yeah, or like thinking, XCOM. Yeah. But I was thinking XCOM, and you definitely do develop this sort of fondness. But it's it's not it's not like <laughs> it's not exactly it's it's kind of this weird possessiveness of them, if you know what I mean, where you name them and play with them like your toys. It's a uh, it's not exactly healthy. <laughs> I think a misanthropic mm. shut-in might actually benefit from games that bring people to your house. Yes, I actually think things like Just Dance 2014. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, god. I thought you were going in a completely different direction. Okay, I'll come back to this. And also <laughs> GoldenEye multiplayer. Always, always, or, always. Uh, always. VR team is spaceship simulator thing. Oh yeah. A bunch of mates around and Kirk up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you can play that um, remotely now as well. Like I've been doing that with some friends because oh, yeah, I am a misanthropic shut-in. I yeah, I I think I think things that you know uh, like maybe Fingal Fingal would bring you together. With some, I think some that people. that might be a bit too much too soon. Too yeah. much too soon. Too much touch. Yeah, yeah. I think. Well, I, you know, it's it's basically a lot of rubbing and and I yeah, think rubbing and gyrating it, fingers. That might just be like a a third game kind of situation. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah it's a bit like I've, I've never kissed a girl. What's your advice? Go to a swingers party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, I would, I would suggest um, maybe board games or pen and paper RPGs might be better. They will obviously get you out of the house and get you talking to people. And there are probably people who play them in your area. There's a lot of like clubs and societies. In, in terms of RPGs, you can also play them over Skype if need be. Yeah, mm. although I feel like it's really difficult to get people to play pen and paper rpgs when they're quite quiet or quite you know shy yes. it's very difficult to get because rpgs really depend on a people's imaginations being sort of mm. extraordinary and b um being quite chatty and inventive yes. uh, but um, i think it's something that the more you play the more you get comfortable with that kind of thing um, yes i remember I guess or you have a terrible time and go home and never come yeah. <laughs> yes maybe stuff um that is like you know left dead as well multiplayer like where you have to look after the members of your own team like it just sort of forces you to hmm. yeah okay we've got uh, a couple more questions left we'll just run through those i guess which game journalist does self-deprecating humor best well obviously that isn't me I don't know. Uh, chris donlin <laughs> is really good at it because he apologizes pretty much constantly for mm. all things yeah. uh, tom francis's game diaries are mostly about him being an idiot yeah, he's he's very apologetic. Yeah. <laughs> oh, have you seen Tom Francis's GTA uh, videos? They are kind of amazing. No, I need to look those up. Oh, 
GTA games should have an extremely apologetic middle class Englishman commentating <laughs> over them at all times. But like there's the first one where he's like competing with his friend there's uh one of them's he's like, um, oh I'm gonna uh, I have to go I have to go slow, make sure your bitch ass can keep up and Tom just replies, Oh thanks, I really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Um I think it's definitely me. I'm definitely the most self deprecating <laughs> the best of it. I'm just fucking awesome at it, to be honest. <laughs> That's a much better version of my joke. <laughs> <laughs> but it was exactly the same joke in essence. That's how sharp I am. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, last question from which would you ask, if you could wipe all memory of a game from your head and play it again fresh, what would it be? Uh, I am going to say uh, Dear Esther, somewhat surprisingly, just because I, I had a uh, I had major feels at the ending, <laughs> you guys, and I would uh, I would like to have that again. Just there was a, a weird rush of things happened, and when I played through mm. second time, I you know I was looking at the game at a technical level instead of on an emotional level, and I I regretted that I could not do that again. So I'd love to have that experience again. Mm. I don't know, like there are some games that I'd quite like to just sort of wipe the memory of and play again, just so that I can get rid of that sentimentality sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, like to actually see whether they were really good or whether it was just because I played them when I was a kid and. <laughs> you know, like they were formative in some way. So. Yeah, I think 99% of humanity needs that for Final Fantasy VII. Yeah. I hate Final Fantasy VII. I can't play it. I can't do it. It's boring and awful. Yeah, I find it also boring and awful. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. We all I've hate Final Fantasy VII. I've like more than about, I don't know, two hours into it because I just, I can't deal with it. It's so boring. Also, there's a comedy... Um, sort of uh, sexual assault scene early on as well where Cloud dresses up as a girl and is chased comically around the room. Oh, yeah, yeah. Rapacious man. Like, that, that, that is not okay. That's just mm. not okay. I don't want to erase the memory of having played any game because I, I Are think you sure? It... Not even... Um, what's its name? Um... <laughs> so you can not play it again in this case. Right to hell well, yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> if I played Right to Hell... Yeah, if I'd never played Right to Hell, I probably would be a much happier... Uh, person it probably you know it it came close to you know making me feel extremely sad for over a day which (laughs) over a day wow well afterwards i mean i I mean it made me miserable for a week whilst i was reviewing it uh but even the day after i felt the effects of it basically trying to psychically assault me what exactly <laughs> was the question was it so that you could play it again or was it just which game would you it like to say yeah, i'm playing again of? i'm afraid uh, okay because <laughs> i think that's what i'm trying to do with dota is to like get rid of all of the memories of all the failures by replacing them with success but you are approaching it with like... all the things you'd learn i mean if you if you had to forget dota again it would be terrible because you'd have to relearn and fail anew but that's the thing, like, I don't want to lose the learning. I think really long, convoluted, miserable games. Mm. Not just the times that I've lost, but the times when I've been involved with a group of friends and some of them have lost their temper with others mm. and things like that, like properly miserable experiences where you just sort of sit there for 45 minutes going, oh, God, why am I doing this? I think I would pick Skyrim, um, Mostly because the, the surprise of discovery is quite good in that game, but also because my Skyrim game has like a hundred mods installed that all do different things, and I've like and I've like picked them out really well. And I really I really love modding games and and slowly improving them. But I, it'd be kind of awesome to go 
even like not even if I didn't forget Skyrim entirely, if I forgot all the mods I'd installed and then went back to it with like because Richard Cobbett did an amazing thing where he he blind installed like a hundred mods into his Skyrim and made it the most weird and insane place <laughs> in the world, um, which is fantastic. But I would also kind of like to do that, having actually picked out good ones myself, but then experiencing them without any foreknowledge. Actually, now that I think about it, I would like to raise my memory of playing Vampire the Masquerade Bloodline, patch it, <laughs> and then play it again. Uh, That's what I'd like to do. That's clever. I would like to erase the world's memory of uh, the game called Singles, which was essentially The Sims, but with Oh, is that the sexy Sims? Yeah. Yeah, just just so that I could be the one who could then introduce it to a disbelieving world. <laughs> wonderful thing. Sorry, I didn't catch catch that. What's it called? It's called Singles. I believe there are Singles too. Like well. kind of and it's basically Single. the Sims, except all you were trying to do was just just get people to to fuck constantly in this. So just like the Sims then. Yeah, so with, awful, you... with awful animation and like these CD flatmates. So... It was really bad. You might as well have just installed the mod that like gets the Sims to just take their clothes off without the, you know, like the reverse pixelates. Oh, sorry. Um, having just talked about Skyrim mods, then being reminded of, of nude mods. Uh, oh. Mm. Re- I... Re- at Rest, Jim's, Jim Rossnell said he would send, send me a, a, a list of all of the awful German, uh, like, sort of, like, essentially romance sims uh, that him and Kieran played through in the 90s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, what? This sounds dreadful, but I really want to. Cause, just because like, it sounds like awful, the way he's just like, yeah, they were just, oh, you, there's one one game in which you, if, if if you piss off the girl, then you just have to wank yourself to sleep or something. Yes, that, that's singles, yeah, yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> that's the option. You don't have to, but the option comes up. Oh, you don't have to. Uh, <laughs> um, I was going to say, if there's a single piece of knowledge that I could forget since becoming a game journalist, it is that every game has a new mod. I, yeah. <laughs> and I, I've written about mods quite a lot, and thus I've seen things that should not be seen. Rome 2 Total War has nudes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Oh, I tell you, I, I, would, the play, Greek I would play nude XCOM in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this time, it wasn't me that sexed up this podcast. I just want everyone to know. You already did it at the Alec wants to be some kind of... It's like in um, Bioshock Infinite when you find out that the uh, guy who did all the music had basically just lied to everyone and had reached into a different dimension and just pulled out all the tunes that he heard, basically. So you're just saying, yeah, I just want to I want to pass off someone else's invention as my own sexy invention. Exactly. So I can be okay. internet famous if I really have the German sex game to the world. You're basically like Bioshock Infinite sex overlord, it's yeah. fine. If yeah, I yeah. the world where they never actually heard of Minecraft and go, like, hey, hey, have you heard of this? <laughs> Have you heard of Minecraft? Yeah. No, excellent. Let me tell you, speaks to my very low aspirations of what I want to achieve as well. Just for a day, I want to be. I basically want a Reddit post. That's basically <laughs> it, isn't it? <laughs> oh, that's frustrating. Okay, um, that's pretty much all we've got time for this week. But um, next week we are going to be at Game City. You're going to be there all week, aren't you, Cara? I'll be all, uh, there all week presenting a, a lunchtime stream on The Guardian with Keith Stewart of also The Guardian. And um, I'm teaching a twine work- workshop on the Wednesday, so come along to that. And also I'll be doing a cyberpunk reading at the closing party on Saturday. Oh, busy um, week. 
Yeah, and also I made a small game based on uh, with Mike Bithell based on uh, Nightmare. So we're going to put buckets on people's heads in uh, the market square, and then uh, they're standing on a grid, and it's the crowd has to direct them uh, corresponding to the screen. Uh, so yes, that'll be fun. Uh, but yeah, I think you should go and play this this German game singles and uh, reinvent your nightmare game based on that. <laughs> oh, I think God. people are not going to be up for that. Well, hang on, wouldn't that just be a collaboration with Martin Hollis? Yeah. You could like have the aim for love thing, aim for love, aim at love, the um thing that he's doing up there. And except um, with Spunk, is this where you're going? Well, I'm basically love thinking that you no, could like. No, we're, we're heading that direction, but you accelerated way fast. <laughs> this is like, this is like the third date problem. <laughs> Anyway, uh, um, I guess yes, that's the end of the podcast. <laughs> much. I was going to say, yes, you are there all week. Uh, Pip, which days are you there again? I'm there Thursday till Saturday slash Sunday. Yes, I'm going to be there Saturday, possibly some of Sunday as well. And while we're there, we're going to record the next podcast with whoever we can find. Uh, hopefully there'll be some cool and interesting people around. So um, we will maybe see you there, depending on who listens to this podcast. I have no idea. All right, um, say bye, everyone. Bye. 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 bye.